I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. In the 1930s, a series of unforeseen economic issues bankrupted Welch's previously thriving business, and by 1935 he was forced to go to work for his younger brother, whom he had introduced to the candy industry a decade before. Though this was a bitter pill to swallow, it turned out for the best. Young James Welch was, as both brothers acknowledged, a better businessman. But it also turned out that Robert was one hell of a candy salesman. Sales surged from 200000 to $20 million by 1956, with Robert's indefatigable sales efforts. And the success of products like Sugar Daddies, which he had invented before joining James's firm. Eventually, James's rather high-handed and dismissive treatment of his brother led to Robert quitting to focus full-time on his other pursuits. But weirdly, this didn't lead to a personal break. The brothers remained close. For such a prolific and heated polemicist, Welch wasn't much of a grudge holder. I don't think he spent a lot of time reflecting on people. The only time he held a grudge was when he was writing a letter. He would pen beautifully written letter that would just eviscerate an opponent. But after the letter was written and either thrown away or mailed, he forgot about the grudge. During the 30s and 40s, Welch became increasingly concerned about FDR and the Democrats. They were, to his mind, spreading socialism and supporting workers' rights at the expense of American enterprise. In terms of foreign affairs, they were moving the country in the direction of war. As an isolationist and a businessman, Welch stridently opposed these positions. He went so far as to join the America First Committee, whose standard-bearer was American hero, aviator, and Nazi sympathizer Charles Lindbergh, and the sole purpose of which was to oppose the U.S. getting into the war against the Germans. America First Committee. Why does that sound so familiar? From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Oh yeah, that. Now, none of this should be heard to construe young Bob as a closet brown shirt. As Miller notes, even a young Jack Kennedy sent the AFC a $100 check at the time, probably reflecting the influence of his anti-interventionist father. But the key point here is that many in the AFC thought that instead of worrying about fascism, the U.S. should be focused on stemming the spread of international communism. This is also the first point where Welch's unique blind spot when it came to recognizing worrying beliefs in his erstwhile allies came to the fore. Now, we're anti-Semitic members 
of the John Birch societies. Welch tried to purge them, but Welch was egregious in the slowness of their removal. And he continues to give this blind eye to strident anti-Semites of the old right. He continues to allow them to publish their screeds into the 1960s. He maintains correspondence with them. The fact that they were allowed to be there in the first place demonstrates that Welch tolerated individuals who held abhorrent views about Jews and Judaism. He couldn't run a society based on theories about shadowy string pullers without attracting anti-Semites, which was what happened. Specifically, he managed to ignore the blatant anti-Semitism that was rife among many pro-AFC individuals, as well as his fellow business people in his adopted hometown of Boston, just as he eventually would in the ranks of his own John Birch Society. We should probably note at this point that, given his birth at the dawn of the 20th century, in the state of North Carolina, and with an uncle who had served one term in the state legislature, and whose singular achievement was the passage of a state constitutional amendment that eliminated black North Carolinians' voting rights. Robert himself remarkably did not seem to harbor any of the standard animosities toward blacks, Jews, and other minorities that were endemic to his contemporaries. Don't get us wrong. He harbored plenty of aggressive views on civil rights and other issues, as well as a proper place of women in society. And as Miller notes, Welch, like many well-off white dudes of his generation, was perfectly comfortable imitating the dialects of black people, both in and out of their presence. Of course, we have no recordings of these obviously awful interludes, but Dana has bravely offered to reenact Welch's offensive, minstrel-style characterizations for us here. Jesuit, I swear to God. Of course, we are not going to do anything of the sort. I just like keeping her on her toes. Welch also remained steadfast in his acceptance of African Americans, Jews, and women as important members of his society once it was established, and had warm personal relationships with people of many backgrounds throughout his life. In fact, while the society would be denounced as fascistic by mainstream publications and other institutions throughout their heyday, as DJ Malloy points out in his The World of the John Birch Society, this label was lazy and really missed the whole point of the Bircher worldview. Welch displayed none of the traits of the fascist charismatic leader, and he did not evoke any of the typical responses in his followers. Nor did he, or the society as a whole, regard capitalism as fundamentally deficient or socially divisive. On the contrary, both Welch and the Birchers extolled its virtues as the very engine of American progress and prosperity. Anti-Semitism is also not a trait that can be convincingly attributed to the John Birch Society, as the California Senate's Un-American Activities Subcommittee noted correctly. More philosophically, Welch had an entirely traditional view of the basic constraints of human nature and its eternal truths in contrast to the fascists' belief in the mutability and perfectibility of man. Finally, no ringing declarations of the transcendent power or extraordinary destiny of the folk were to be found embedded in the society's literature. To be sure, the Birch Society was virulently anti-communist and extremely suspicious about the merits of democracy. Other commonly agreed-upon fascist traits but the former view was shared by the overwhelming majority of American society at the time, and the latter had led Welsh to embrace not fascism, but an older, Republican-based model of American politics. We'll come back to all of this when discussing the John Birch Society's various campaigns, but for now we'll simply notice that Welch's problem in this area stemmed not only from the time and place in which he was born, but also from his gung-ho Americanism, which led him to be suspicious of so-called hyphenism. African-American, German-American, Italian-American, etc. And moreover, the same tendency ended up turning him into a conspiracy theorist. 
Well, his early life helped make him a conspiracist. He was born in a postbellum South that was very suspicious of the North. His ancestors feared the loss of their social status, the loss of their slaves, the loss of their jobs, the decline of their white supremacy. And even after he had left the South as a young candy manufacturer working in an industry without patents, and fearing that his latest confectionery invention would be stolen by the competition, Welch was always in a state of hypervigilance. That Welch's original business was unsuccessful, that also contributed to his insecurity. After he went into business with his brother James, whom he taught everything he knew about the candy business, he discovered that James never considered him a business partner, but simply an employee who deserved a daily wage, but no more. Once Pearl Harbor happened, Welch became convinced that FDR, who he was certain knew in advance precisely where and how the attack would happen, had carried off an illegal coup, bringing the U.S. into a war under false pretenses. He was hardly the only person, either then or today, to believe this conspiracy theory. See our false flag episode. Like Ronald Reagan would a decade-plus later, Welch began his career in politics by delivering speeches to essentially any group that would have him. Unlike Reagan, however, Welch was not a particularly commanding or engaging presence at the lectern. In fact, here's Miller's rather nauseating description of the Robert Welch live experience. The papers from the speech would fall from the rostrum to the floor. His persistent cough from all the cigars he loved to smoke. <laughs> would cause him to hack away without regard to the audience. That would produce phlegm. Then he would swallow the sputum, likely turning the stomachs of the attendees. Fuck, Jesuit. Yeah, I know. But the point is, it wasn't Welch's speaking style that mesmerized. It was his prose and the conspiracies it claimed to unearth that had speaking invitations flooding in from all sorts of right-leaning and patriotic groups in the post-war period. Another difference, of course, was that unlike Reagan, Welch didn't collect fat speaking fees for his efforts. Yep. Welch was the sort of true believer for whom money just didn't figure into the equation. His life's work was saving free Western civilization from the threat of communism. Getting paid for his efforts wasn't a big consideration. Nor was he seeking personal glory when he made an abortive attempt to run for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts in 1950 but his failure in the Republican primary convinced him once and for all that his influence wouldn't be as a politician, but rather as the nation's foremost promulgator of the ideas that obsessed him. Which brings us to the decade in which the country's obsession with communism reached a fever pitch, the 1950s. And of course, the single person who embodied anti-red sentiment for millions of Americans was one Joseph, tailgunner Joe McCarthy. First things first, the Soviets did, indeed, engage in extensive clandestine efforts to infiltrate the West and steal secrets. But McCarthy and Welch had the timing all wrong. Welch is off by about 30 years. A conspiracy theory of communist subversion had some basis in reality at a certain time. But by 1951, when Senator Joseph McCarthy was declaring a conspiracy at the highest levels of the federal government and Robert Welch was saying the same thing. 
the number of Soviet spies within the Truman and Eisenhower administrations was negligible and had little influence. Writers like Welch made Americans believe that high-level officials like Dean Acheson, George Marshall, and even President Eisenhower were enemies of the state. Miller notes that the real heyday of Soviet infiltration of the U.S. started in the 1920s. At the time, the target wasn't government, but rather business secrets. These industrial espionage efforts helped turbocharge Soviet industrialization. Then, of course, came the 1930s, which historians agree was the real golden era of Soviet spying. The NKVD... That's the predecessor to the KGB. ...deployed a network of spies, known as the Legals and the Illegals, who were almost astonishingly accomplished at recruiting and collecting intelligence from highly placed, communist-sympathizing Brits and Americans. Those of you who are fans of smart, well-plotted, late Cold War TV drama of the highest quality may recall that the couple who were at the heart of the excellent 2010s drama series The Americans were part of the illegal side of this espionage program. That's right. The smart, resourceful, super-duper sexy. Philip and Elizabeth, who, in spite of their being thrown together by duty, have a palpable animal magnetism that drives them to fall on each other in a sweaty, heaving tangle of limbs, tearing away both ideology and their clothes in a writhing, orgiastic riot of undeniable lust. Jesuit? No, he's not responding. Uh, quick hit guy, some cold water? Barrel strain! Emergency fire hose! Jeez. Oh. You back with us? Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. Anyway, those characters are what the KGB called illegals, agents who silently infiltrate another country. In this case, assigned to portray a married pair of travel agents in D.C. while actually focusing on doing all kinds of skullduggery, capturing defectors, recruiting or seducing well-placed sources, etc. All the while being like, really? What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sexy? Yeah, that's it. Legals, meanwhile, were those Russians who had legitimate reason to be in the country in which they were spying. That is, folks who worked in the diplomatic corps, embassy staff, etc. Exactly. And while the show was inspired by a ring of Russian illegals who were exposed in 2010, those recent spies weren't nearly as effective as their counterparts from the 1920s and 30s. The story is detailed in the fascinating The Sword and the Shield, a comprehensive review of Cold War KGB infiltrations of the West based on files smuggled out of the spy agency itself by defector Vasily Mitrokin back in the 1970s. In other words, this is the best warts in all view we have of how the Soviet spy agency functioned and dysfunctioned during the Cold War. The first surprising thing to realize was that, even as late as the 1930s, getting intelligence from the USA was secondary to obtaining secrets from the UK, France, and Germany, which Stalin and co. saw as far more impactful world powers. Of course, as the US began to involve itself more in European affairs, eventually entering World War II and then working on atomic weapons, the focus very much changed. But it's worth considering the Soviets' numerous successes in infiltrating the Brits in the 30s and how they fill out the view of Stalin we covered earlier that he was both a wielder and victim of conspiracy thinking. Clearly, the biggest intelligence coup they accomplished was recruiting a group of highly placed government contacts known as the Five. By far the most celebrated of these agents were a group of five young Cambridge graduates. Anthony Blunt, Guy Burgess, John Cairncross, Donald McLean, and Kim Philby. After the release of the enormously popular western The Magnificent Seven in 1960, they were often referred to as the Magnificent Five. These gents delivered an absolutely astonishing volume of incredibly useful information, simply because they were true believers in the great international socialist cause. 
But that's where the weirdness of Stalin's brain started kneecapping the effectiveness of his own spy agency. The problem was all of the higher-ups in the government believed that the UK must obviously be putting just as much effort into spying on the USSR as they themselves were putting into their British operations. Only this just wasn't true. Neither the UK nor the US really ramped up efforts to spy on the Reds until wartime. But Stalin believed it must be true. So you can see what would have happened, right? Oh, of course. If their UK spies couldn't provide details on the UK's non-existent anti-Soviet spying program, they were ipso facto double agents for the Brits and therefore couldn't be trusted. Bingo. Philby's accurate report that at the present time, the hotel, SIS, is not engaged in active work against the Soviet Union, was also, in the center's view, obvious disinformation. Since the five were double agents, it followed that those they had recruited to the NKVD were also plants. One example which particularly exercised the center was the case of Peter Smollett, who in 1941 had achieved the remarkable feat of becoming head of the Russian department in the wartime Ministry of Information. By 1943, Smollett was using his position to organize pro-Soviet propaganda on a prodigious scale. A vast meeting at the Albert Hall in February to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Red Army included songs of praise by a massed choir, readings by John Gielgud and Laurence Olivier, and was attended by leading politicians from all parties. Yet because Smollett had been recruited by Philby, he was, in the eyes of the centre, necessarily a plant. His apparently spectacular success in organising pro-Soviet propaganda on an unprecedented scale was thus perversely interpreted as a cunning plot by British intelligence to hoodwink the NKVD. In fact, the book notes the Russians were deeply confused by the fact that all of the intelligence the five delivered was so accurate and dependable, but decided that that was part of the whole double bluff. See, kids? Friends don't let friends become conspiracy theorists, especially when those friends are autocratic heads of state. Not that these doubts stopped Philby prior to his eventual defection to the Soviet Union to avoid arrest and imprisonment, from continuing to be a huge asset to his spymasters and a real traitorous shit to his country of origin. Philby's liaison duties with the CIA allowed him to warn the center of American as well as British operations against the Soviet bloc, even enabling him to provide the geographical coordinates of parachute drops by British and American agents. When writing his memoirs later, Philby was sometimes unable to resist gloating over the fate of the hundreds of agents he betrayed. Referring to those who parachuted into the arms of the MGB, he wrote with macabre irony, I do not know what happened to the parties concerned, but I can make an informed guess. Of course, even if the Soviets hadn't been hampered by their own conspiracist worldview, there was some doubt as to how effectively they could have used all this intelligence in the first place. The book proves that the KGB was far better at gathering material than it was at turning it into actionable information. The Soviet capacity to understand the political and diplomatic intelligence it collected never approached its ability to collect that intelligence in the first place. Its natural tendency to substitute conspiracy theory for pragmatic analysis when assessing the intentions of the encircling imperialist powers was made worse during the 1930s by Stalin's increasing tendency to act as his own intelligence analyst. Stalin indeed actively discouraged intelligence analysis by others, which he condemned as dangerous guesswork. Don't tell me what you think, he is reported to have said. Give me the facts and the source. As a result, INO had no analytical department. As usual, the whole apparatus was bent to the whims of Stalin, which means they were delivering a view of reality skewed toward whatever they thought Uncle Joe wanted to hear. And what Stalin wanted to hear was that the biggest threat to the future of the USSR, next to his former rival Leon Trotsky, whom he finally had assassinated in Mexico City in 1940, with a fucking axe. Yeah, aside from Trotsky, the biggest threat was, of course, literally anyone in the Soviet Union who might disagree with Stalin even the tiniest bit about anything. Which leads us to the reason that those legals and illegals who were so effective in the 1930s stopped being so effective, which is that Stalin had them all recalled to the motherland where most ended up denounced and or shot during the Great Terror of 1936-38, to 38, 
along with about 700,000 of their fellow citizens. Among the first to fall under suspicion was the London head of probably the NKVD's most successful illegal residency, Theodore Mali, whose religious background and revulsion at the use of terror made him an obvious suspect. He accepted the order to return to Moscow in June 1937 with an idealistic fatalism. I know that as a former priest I haven't got a chance, he told Alexander Orlov. But I have decided to go there so that nobody can say that priest might have been a real spy after all. Once in Moscow, he was denounced as a German spy, interrogated and shot a few months later. So what about the Soviets' efforts in the U.S.? Well, once they geared up to really develop spies in America, the spy service was once again remarkably successful. In fact, their infiltration is, in retrospect, rather terrifying. Speaking of two of the highest-placed spies, Lawrence Duggan and Harry Dexter White, well, just listen. Henry Wallace, vice president during Roosevelt's third term of office, 1941 to 1945, said later that if the ailing Roosevelt had died during that period and he had become president, it had been his intention to make Duggan his secretary of state and White his secretary of the treasury. The fact that Roosevelt survived three months into an unprecedented fourth term in the White House and replaced Wallace with Harry Truman as vice president in January 1945 deprived Soviet intelligence of what would have been its most spectacular success in penetrating a major Western government. The NKVD succeeded nonetheless in penetrating all the most sensitive sections of the Roosevelt administration. Holy shit! Tailgunner Joe and Bob Welsh are sounding more sensible all the time. Indeed. And the book points out that the Soviets were particularly effective when it came to stealing science and technology secrets by turning well-placed scientists and others into informants during the 30s and 40s. In 1939 alone, NKVD operations in the United States obtained 18,000 pages of technical documents, 487 sets of designs, and 54 samples of new technology. Thus, our accelerated development of atomic and eventual nuclear weapons, thanks to stolen plans from the UK and the US. Which, again, seems to make the Red Scare pretty reasonable. Sure, at first glance it seems so, but we remind you of a truism about conspiracy theorists that we mentioned way back in our very first episode. One of the problems of conspiracist thinking is it makes you believe that an enemy who was effective in the past remains exactly that effective and powerful forever ignoring the fact that nobody stays at the top of their game indefinitely. As we just noted, Stalin kneecapped his own intelligence gathering via his ruthless paranoid purges. It also became tremendously more difficult to develop great legal and illegal embedded agents, either by training Soviets to do the job or by recruiting in the West in subsequent decades. The age of the great illegals, brilliant cosmopolitans such as Deutsch and Mali, able to inspire others with their own visionary faith in the future of the Soviet system, had gone never to return. Turning Soviet citizens brought up in the authoritarian, intellectually blinkered command economy of Stalin's Russia into people who could pass as Westerners and cope successfully with life in the United States was to prove a daunting as well as time-consuming business. Recruiting high-flying, ideologically committed American agents was also vastly more difficult during the Cold War than during the 1930s or the Second World War. The Soviet Union had lost much of its appeal even to young, radical intellectuals alienated by the materialism and injustices of American society. It was deeply ironic that when McCarthy's self-serving campaign against the Red Menace was at its height, Soviet penetration of the American government was at its lowest ebb for almost 30 years. In fact, most of the biggest intelligence successes they had during Eisenhower and Kennedy's administrations were from Westerners who just walked into an embassy and offered to share what they knew. key factor driving Welch's post-war obsession with opposing communism that we hadn't previously considered was that, as Miller puts it, 
Welch, like millions of Americans, lived in a state of fear. The period we're talking about is just a few years after the first atomic bombs were dropped by the U.S. on Japan. It's funny. Gen Xers like Jesuit and certain Northern European legendary horse ladies were born into a world where being afraid that full-scale nuclear war could break out at any time had been table stakes for decades. Indeed. And in fact, the overall Gen X slacker who-gives-a-shit attitude is nicely summed up by sketch comedy geniuses Kids in the Hall a few years after we lost the USSR as a mortal enemy. Oh yeah, we feared the Russians back in them days, and for good reason too. But now all I ever hear is... Poor little Russia, they've got no money. Poor little Russia, they've gone broke. Poor little Russia this and poor little Russia that. Don't you get it? Am I the only one that gets it? It's a trick. Communism never dies. Communism is a cancer, a cancer sleeping, awaiting the moment to devour our freedom, to devour democracy. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this guy's just some right-wing paranoid reactionary who had a horrible upbringing and whose father beat him every day with a Bible. Well, maybe that's true, but it never did me any harm. (laughs) All I'm saying is, a few years ago, people used to listen to me. I fit in. Well, listen to me now. The Russians, they're going to try to take over the world again. Don't you forget that for one second, friend, or else you'll find yourself lining up for toilet paper in some godless world. Given all that, it's hard for us to comprehend how absolutely sci-fi fucked up this scenario must have seemed to a 49-year-old man of the post-war era. Yeah, imagine. Welch is born in what amounts to a horse-and-buggy world, and now, before he turns 50, it's suddenly possible for humans to drop a weapon that is, for all intents and purposes, the fucking hand of God emerging from the clouds and smiting you and everyone you know out of existence in seconds. And worse, while yours is the only government that knows how to build these things, It's a sure fucking bet that other countries, like emerging superpower opponent the USSR, which you recently discovered had absolutely riddled the Roosevelt administration with spies bent on stealing secrets like atomic weapons, would start cranking out their own world-shattering bombs soon enough. At which point, for the first time in history, it would be possible for an entire city to be destroyed by an enemy in minutes, potentially without any declaration of war or advance notice of any kind. Terrifying stuff, right? But, of course, Welch didn't respond like any normal shit-scared American man of his era by getting drunk, chasing his secretary around his desk, beating his kids, or digging a homemade fallout shelter in the backyard. Instead, he threw himself into the anti-communist movement that was being spearheaded by his political hero, Joe McCarthy. As Miller notes, McCarthy was making politics interesting again. It was warfare. It was mortal combat. It was hyperbole. It was fun. The second Red Scare's first major event came when Elizabeth Bentley, also known as the Red Spy Queen, started talking to the House Un-American Activities Committee. We were getting information from the Army, particularly the Air Corps, from the Treasury, from the State Department, from the OSS, from the CIAA, the Rockefeller Committee, from the OWI, or Manpower Commission, I think that about covers it, Senator. Yeah, what were some of your activities when you were a card-carrying member? Well, I think they're the usual activities for a uh, communist member, of uh, participating in picket lines, uh, helping in strikes, um, going on demonstrations to help the unemployed or to uh, other outfits who were demonstrating, uh, reading Communist Party literature. Uh, paying dues? Paying dues, certainly. Did you pay your dues? Yes, I paid my dues. Of 
course, Bentley's confessions were big news, but they were, in fact, backward-looking. The heyday of her spy circle occurred during the war. By the time she testified in 1948, the Soviets had, for reasons we outlined previously, lost most of their mojo. But McCarthy's raving claim that he had a list of 205 dedicated communists in the State Department of course kicked things into high dudgeon, and Senator Joe and his compatriots on the House Un-American Activities Committee, or PUAC, began conducting hearings investigating every area in which they suspected communist infiltration and subversion, especially Hollywood and various government departments. We covered Nixon's role in the Alger Hiss case, which was a big part of this Red Scare phenomenon, albeit one aimed at a man who was probably an actual spy, which wasn't true for most of the targets. In spite of the fact that they were persecuting and smearing the reputations of innocent people, the Huac, of course, postured like any bully, claiming those who opposed their activities were the real oppressors, as in this committee-produced propaganda film. Ladies and gentlemen, Congressman Francis E. Walter, Democrat from Pennsylvania and Chairman of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Operation Abolition. This is what the communists call their current drive to destroy the House Committee on Un-American Activities and to render sterile the security laws of our government. The Communist Party has given top priority to Operation Abolition and has assigned agents, trained, and agitation to this project. During the next few minutes, you will see revealed uh, the long-time classic communist tactic in which a relatively few well-trained, hardcore communist agents are able to incite and use non-communist sympathizers to perform the dirty work of the Communist Party. Eventually, the whole thing started falling apart when McCarthy took on the U.S. military, accusing various personnel of secret communist leanings. This all came to a head when Joseph Welch, general counsel for the Army, had this famous exchange with the senator. And I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member, as early as 1944. Senator, let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? I know this hurts you, Mr. Welch. I'll but say it may, hurts. May I say, Mr. Chairman, Mr. as a point of personal privilege, I'd like to finish this. Senator, I think it hurts you too, Senator, sir. At that point, the U.S. public had a sort of emperor's new clothes moment, and McCarthy began to be seen as the opportunistic conspiracist that he in fact was. Anti-communism of the McCarthy-Welch variety fell out of fashion, to the point that, ironically, as the KGB history notes, the whole thing ended up serving as invaluable cover for the USSR's limited ongoing efforts to rebuild its infiltration of the U.S. during the latter 50s. McCarthy's raving was so over-the-top, it made the liberal establishment more likely to ignore the actual, still-existing threat. Despite his outrageous inventions and exaggerations, McCarthy rapidly won a mass following. He did so because he succeeded in striking a popular chord. To many Americans, the idea of an enemy within, given plausibility by the convictions of Hiss and Fuchs, followed a year later by those of the Rosenbergs, helped to explain why the United States, despite its immense power, seemed unable to prevent the onward march of world communism and the emergence of the Soviet Union as a nuclear superpower. President Truman's claim in 1951 that the greatest asset that the Kremlin has as Senator McCarthy was, in the long run, to be proved right. McCarthy ultimately did more for the Soviet cause than any agent of influence the KGB ever had. His preposterous, self-serving crusade against the Red Menace 
made liberal opinion around the world sceptical of the reality of Moscow's secret intelligence offensive against the main adversary. It took some years, however, for the centre to grasp the enormous propaganda advantages of McCarthyism. Tailgunner Joe may have gone away, but Robert Welch was certainly not giving up the fight. Still convinced that internal subversion was the greatest threat to the United States. An opinion that wouldn't waver for the rest of his life. Welch started writing. His first major effort was eventually published in 1951 under the title May God Forgive Us, a broadside outlining Welch's conviction that the Truman administration was rife with communists sabotaging U.S. foreign policy. It sold like hotcakes. Though not as fast as Welch's significant ego thought it should. The book was full of simplistic arguments and exaggerations, but as Miller notes, Compared to the nonsensical hyperbole that McCarthy was spewing, may God forgive us, made Welch appear a scholar and a statesman, at least in the eyes of the right. By 1954, midway through Eisenhower's first term, as McCarthy's popularity and that of his anti-communist crusade was collapsing, Welch became convinced that the president was doing the bidding of Moscow. Please recall, this is General Dwight David Eisenhower the man who oversaw the Normandy landing and led U.S. forces in Europe in World War II. Welch thought that guy was a secret red. Not only did he think it, he wrote it. He started circulating a long manuscript, what would eventually become a 200-page tome called The Eisenhower Letter, to other conservatives who either shared his convictions or whom he thought could be convinced. The screed would come back to haunt him a few years later, but we'll address that momentarily. In the years after his lieutenant gubernatorial run, Welch adapted his erstwhile campaign committee into a group of like-minded, dedicated, small-government, pro-America diehards who would in turn disperse like right-wing dandelions on the wind, establishing small groups across Massachusetts and eventually other states. This, of course, was the original hardcore of what would later in the decade form the John Birch Society. Which leads us to a point that many of you may already have wondered, namely, Why is this thing called the John Birch Society instead of the Robert Welch Society? Well, Welch, whatever his other faults, wasn't much of a self-aggrandizing megalomaniac. True believer? Sure. Easily convinced of huge conspiracies on flimsy evidence? No doubt. But he's not the kind of dude who needed to plaster his name all over everything. In fact, far from leveraging the society for his own glorification or as a cash cow, Miller notes the Birch Society by the end of his life had essentially eaten the significant fortune Welch made in his first career as a candy executive. He took no salary, poured most of his earnings into the JBS, and at his death barely left his widow enough to live on. But much more important was what the actual historical John Birch represented for Welch. That is, the avatar of the sort of American who would be needed to fight the crucial anti-communist battles of the future.
There are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. But there are also unknown knowns. The Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope is a secret society devoted to unearthing and sharing this forgotten knowledge. Each episode, we take one of these strange stories and share it with you. No topic is off-limits, except for the obvious. Available wherever fine podcasts are sold.